This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Rich Reichbach. Uh, we were talking about the pronunciation of your last name here. Um, what, what, what did your original ancestors call? I'm guessing it's a German background? Yeah, my grandfather is Austrian. I have a lot of uh, Austrian, Eastern European, Austrian. I think it's funny because we track watchmakers as they sort of have this diaspora out of Europe, right? Sort of around... Uh, starting in the early 20th century, going to the, you know, after World War II into the 70s. And you have these like random people living around the world that have watchmaking skills and you can sort of track their heritage back to someplace where watchmaking was big, you know, uh, France, Switzerland, England, Germany, Austria. Um, and it's interesting though, because there really wouldn't be too many other opportunities for someone living on the West Coast of the United States to become a watchmaker. And I sort of want to start with that because you are the son of a watchmaker, a skill that you can't necessarily just sort of like, you know, go, go to your local uh, training facility down the street in your city to learn about. And what was that like growing up with a father who had a skill that probably wasn't shared by any of the other dads? Oh, uh, it was awesome. I really idolized my dad. And I'm from New York, so it's a little more commonplace, but still nobody had his profession. Um, my dad grew up in Yonkers. He was second generation, I guess. His grandparents had come over. And he had a pretty ordinary childhood. But his childhood best friend's uncle was a curator at the Met. And so he was just exposed from a very early age to fabulous antiques and antiquities. And this led him on a, on a path after a stint in the Navy fixing jets uh, to being a bench jeweler uh, and numismatist and gemologist. And then after a very bad robbery, and he was left with only a broken bag of pocket watches, he went to Boulevard Watchmaking School uh, at a little older age. He was 27 and actually still have his workbook where he didn't get lower than a 97 on any test. And he had found his calling. It was the second to last graduating class before they closed Bolva Watchmaking School in Queens. And he was an That's actor. so interesting. What year, what year was that? 78. Okay, so that's about, because again, that's about as long as any type of wristwatch making education in the sort of classic sense as opposed to sort of a technician school. That's basically when it ended in America, around that time. Sure, it's pre-WOSTAP uh, here, I think. And he... Uh, had a very quick stint at Rolex where uh, they admonished him for repairing too many watches in a day. I've heard about that. You're working too fast. You're making other people look bad. That, yeah. That's actually not a joke. That's a real thing in Swiss watchmaking culture. 100% it is, yeah. And my dad was, he was an addict. And so, he, you know, it's funny. He was a very, very talented watchmaker, but he was also a watch dealer and and a, and a clock dealer and random Americana and Tiffany glass. And probably that was one of his big issues is that he was too broad and not focused enough, but he loved pocket watch. So he was like a polymath and they wanted him to be, 
you know, just live, breathe, eat, watch, repair. Oh, well, that was in the Rolex days. He was just doing, you know, watchmaking work, but it was, you know, he could do six, seven overhauls in a day and they wanted one and were very, you know, insistent. So he went out on his right. own and eventually opened his own shop. And he had a, a shop in the Bedford Hills train station in Westchester, New York, uh, the actual Metro North train station, which uh, the Metro North leased it to the town of Bedford and they leased it to my dad. And so when you came in on the commuter rail, he had this classic clock shop in a train station. It was so cool. That is really cool. And in and, and New York, we have Grand Central time, which is in the train station. Sure. I'm sure there was a lot before that. That's still one of my favorite ones. I'm sure you're, you're friends with those guys. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with Steve. I, you know, I was never uh, so close with him, but he's, he's a classic. He's an OG. Uh, and, you know, the, I started going to watch shows in the late 90s. So while I'm not directly uh, an OG, I know I know all of them. And I've, you know, been professional. At this. But that is pretty, um, today, in today's little universe of watch sellers and makers and things like that, to do anything in the, ni- in the late 90s and still do it today, that, that definitely makes you um, par- at least part of the old guard, so to say. Sure. I just was still in high school. This is before I went to Tulane. Uh, before I went to Pace Law School, before I made the decision during law school to be a full-time watch dealer. So that, you know, I was doing eBay, but I was buying and selling Warhammer figurines in high school. Oh, cool. I used to paint those little things. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's that's some real nerdy conversation right here. We're not going to get into Warhammer. (laughs) I'm I'm an original nerd, guys. You know, that's that's probably one big element of, of what appealed to me in watches. You know, just... So this is a really interesting foundation. And again, I love to talk a little bit about this because you you have a little brand, Wellsboro Watch. You've yeah. been selling watches um, through the Time Titan store that you have on eBay for close to 20 years now, it looks like. And I love to discuss how people like yourself come about, sort of the origin story. There is no one direct way to getting into watches. Yours is a little bit more maybe predictable because your father uh, other people, myself and many others, had you know no you know familial historic connection to it. But I think you'll agree that people today in the watch industry are sort of made rather than sort of found, right? Like you have to engender it in the personality through a bunch of experiences, probably over a childhood and lifetime, and then and only then can you really ever have the competency to be in the watch industry. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. And it's true. Do you agree? Disagree? I completely agree. I I think in a social media world where smoke and mirrors rules the day, uh, that, you know, gives that that sentiment some... I.e. there's no punishment for lying? Yeah, just right. That, you know, you can look as expert as you want while not being an expert. There's a big component of fake it till you make it. I think, but you know. Well, th- again, I- again, philosophically speaking, what's going on in most other contexts? Someone like a network, if you're on television, prevents you from lying, or in the social context, you're punished, or there's you know legal implications for lying. Online, lying is something that is not punished, and frequently people seem to perceive others getting benefits from lying. So not only is lying on social media sort of validated, but it's not policed at all. And again, I've thought about it a lot. I think that's the core issue. Oh, completely agree. And I I think also (laughs) watches will attract people that don't really want to work, that that figure out like this niche for themselves, that this is not like the new breed of people who are, I'm sure, very hardworking. 
But, you know, this is like the, the movie Best in Show always resonated with me as I always thought that the original Watch World was kind of greatest generation guys and LLB and fishing vests at NAWCC shows was full of really oddball characters who might have fit that description better than what uh, came about after the Watch Industrial Complex, where I think you have a lot of smart people who otherwise, uh, like myself, might have been lawyers and didn't become lawyers, and they became, you know, watch mavens. I mean, I like you, I started my, in a different way, my watch business right after law school as well. I think it was the month after I took the bar exam that I started uh, the website. So um, you and I both know how many lawyers fall into this. But it's sort of thinking people, right? Like, that's, that's the common thread. Whether you're an engineer, doctor, lawyer, some type of builder, some type of thinker, some type of business person, there's an intellectual prerequisite that I have found is really required to be into watches. And then, ironically, sometimes you have <clears throat> the posers, like the people that aren't quite there but want to look like it. You know, like you, you've, we've, we've been in those groups where there's that one or two guys that really is enthusiastic, but you're just like, they don't really get it, do they? They're just looking at what everyone else likes. Exactly correct. Uh, I think that it, it, it attracts that type of person. There's something so endlessly fascinating about uh, watches themselves and the, and the, the ocean of watches, which uh, has almost unlimited depths. And, you know, as we go forward, as new micro brands are created by the day, you know, those depths only get deeper. So I want to ask you, in your opinion, logically speaking, the world doesn't really need more watches or more watch brands. So why no. do they keep coming? Well, I'm sorry, say again? So why do they keep coming? If the world doesn't need more watchmakers, watch brands, or actual products, because there's so many out there, why is it that so many people leave behind otherwise fruitful careers, in our case, law, to go into this weird area, me, media, you actually as a watchmaker and, uh, and a dealer, what, what is the call to this sort of strange thing? Is it, is it what you said? It seems sort of like, seems like not working. Uh, again, just because you're a thinking person, and you've been it for so long, I'd love to hear your philosophy on it because people who are listening themselves don't always know why they're afflicted with this interest. Mm. Well, you know, 04, I graduated Tulane and a month later I was working with my dad. And during that next five years, I got my law degree, but realized that I really enjoyed watch dealing. And that was a very different universe. Uh, so there just weren't that many people and the interest wasn't there. Right now, uh, 2022 is the 2021, 2022, we're, we're uh, the year of peak watch, much like peak TV. And as the streaming wars uh, settle and a lot of that gets cold and we'll go from, you know, 800 new TV shows down to probably half that and maybe half that again, that will happen with watches too. But uh, I think the desire to be your own boss and make good money is always going to be there for America and for Americans generally. And I think during the run-up in popularity of watches that we've seen in the past 15 years, that has been very viable. And so probably the, you know, a little bit of chutzpah, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of marketing slick, and uh, you could make a possibly very fruitful business for yourself. I agree with you that it takes chutzpah. Someone one time said to me that it takes grit, which I agree, but there's an audacity to say, 
you know what? I'm going to decide that I have something to contribute to this world, whether it's a design, whether it's uh, a way of retailing, whether it's an opinion, uh, you know, in, in, in my case. But it takes um, a level of confidence and charisma. First, you need to know what you're talking about. But then people need to take that extra step to say, I can contribute in some way to this community. And, and in addition to that, again, I'm just trying to unpack what you said a little bit because I think it's great stuff. There's an entrepreneurial appeal. There's not that many things that guys like you and me can do from home that's sort of entrepreneurial. This is one of the weird things because there's a lot of ways to be into it. And, and we understand the product so well as well as why people like it. It's sort of like a, a, a weird novel, maybe kind of hipstery way of, of chasing an American dream. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of different ways to be a watch dealer. I think I have a very unique process of doing it. And I think that Tell you could it. have a, a 180 degree different process for mine and, and be as or more successful. So I have a- True, pretty, true. There's no, there's no one way to do what you do or, or what I do for that matter. Totally. I have a large pie of where the things come from. Uh, and it changes month to month and year to year. So I've sold. So you mean your inventory? Like there's yeah. a lot of different places where the inventory comes from. Okay, go absolutely. on. Absolutely. So I've sold like ten thousand watches in my career with both my dad at Mark's wow. time and then myself as Time Titans. So I've just I've done a lot of business, and I I don't see myself as imbuing value to the watches that I sell innately because I Time Titans Rich Reichback have sold these watches. I, I, I think that's a bit pompous and presumptuous and it's just not my style. Uh, I, I think what I have is a platform to sell things for their value. And that when somebody deals with me, they know they're going to get a fair shake. And that is unlocked my ability to use my knowledge of the values of watches, which is very extensive, to try to buy under market to sell at market. So I have uh, authorized dealers that I've been dealing with for a dozen years that will sell me their pre-owns. So I just got a package of a blue uh, IWC Ceramic Warrior, new one from last year, a bronze blue dial IWC Pilots Chrono. Very cool watch. Quick, quick question. is uh, My understanding is that that's an increasingly competitive market, meaning going to watch dealers who are accepting trade-ins or have pre-owns for whatever reason who themselves don't want to deal with it. And there's, you know, they, they, they sell it to a sort of a variety of different types of, of dealers like yourself. Because bigger companies are getting into it, because there's certified pre-owned now, is it is it becoming more competitive and more difficult to acquire that inventory? I'm just curious. Uh, probably. I've been dealing with the same people for a dozen years. They're, right. uh, they themselves are an OGAD. They're, I doubt they'll ever do CPO Rolex, which we could talk at length about, but that's, I don't, you know, I see that as silly. Whole other topic. Whole yeah, other topic. Look at the prices on Boucher, right? Like, come on. Um, silliness. It is silliness. I think probably one of their big sources of revenue is jewelry. The watches are probably window dressing. And I quote strong and I make their jobs easier. I allow them to close deals. And it's just a strength of relationship. I'm sure that they get other watch dealers inquiring, but they've known me for a long time. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, it's a relationship business. I tell people that who want to get in the industry. I think it's so important to 
clarify that right now with your example. But the way to get in is not to sort of burst in the door and be like, I'm here watching history, I want to do something. It's by slowly over time generating relationships based upon trust and fair dealing. Um, you know, it, it, it's it, money speaks a lot, but so does consistency, so does fairness, so does trustworthiness. Um, this is the most relationship-heavy industry that I've ever personally seen. 100%. 100%. And that's why I have them. But they're not the be-all, the end-all. I, I would call them the, you know, the, it's a nice portion of profits that I'm making in a year, but it's not, but it's a long way from being the majority. Um, it's a nice minority. I And then you have... The Wellsboro brand that you relaunched. Sure, which is not making money yet, and it's a long-term project. But just to finish about Time Titans, uh, oh, yeah, arbitrage please. on eBay, uh, people reaching out of the 10,000 deals that I've made to sell me watches, and uh, other dealers, like international dealers, offering me stuff, uh, makes rounds out the pie. So... Is this something that you would recommend to others? I think this is an interesting point to ask this question. I have frequently been asked by a multitude of people how to get in the watch industry. I n never try to lie to them about it. I always make it clear that it's hard and you have to take a lot of steps and try and try again and try to get your way in the door somehow. And for me, I mean, I had to be in the industry for like 10 years before everyone was like, oh, okay, Ariel's here to stay. I guess we can trust this guy now. But it's, it's, it's a very challenging thing to get into, what would what would you say to those people, the eager uh, that see the activity online, social media, website, you know, the, the, all the videos and things like, feel that it looks glamorous? W what do you say to the people who say, "Rich, how do I get into this?" Uh, well, I'll say a few things. For, for, well, my life isn't glamorous. It's you know, I I don't live this you know Ferrari lifestyle. You know, I think that's silly. So. Um, I would say that watch dealing is a great way to take a large fortune and make it a small one, famously. Uh, I think that being a watch dealer requires an unteachable skill set. You know, did you successfully deal in, in other arenas? You know, were you good at Pokemon cards? Were you good at XYZ collectible that you kind of learned your way around and made money? Uh, were you just generally a good seller? You know, some sellers can't get out of their own way. You, you kind of have to... I, I have many years of restaurant service experience, like top level front of house. Uh, uh, during college, I worked at a very famous restaurant called Galatoire's. I was a bartender for all four years. I, I had a stint in Massa in New York City. I have a lot of restaurant experience. And I've had people be absolutely horrible to me uh, in, as, as a waiter, as a front of house person. You just have to let it roll off of you. If you can't do that, service work is not for you. And it's kind of the same bit on the internet. You know, people are just going to kind of throw a lot of stuff at you and you have to let it roll off of you. Uh, so it's it's a unique skill set. Got to have a thick skin in this You have to have a thick skin. Dear friend of mine, uh, 10 years ago, I had just moved to Richmond, Virginia for a couple of years to for my wife to go to grad school. She went to Brand Center at VCU and she's a creative director, art director. She makes commercials. She actually just made a Google's year in search film. She made it. And she's also my partner on Wellsboro, which we'll get into. How great. How fortunate for you. Yeah, that's why Wellsboro is great. <laughs> but it's not me. Um, but 
he, my buddy, uh, was very successful at selling high-end race bikes. And, you know, he had an e- burgeoning eBay business doing that, but he got into watches. And I sort of offered to show him the ropes, but he really chose to learn on his own. And he's surpassed me five times over. He's not a public-facing dealer. He's wholesale, but he probably makes three to five times whatever I make. Um, you, you know, he just, he has skills that you can't teach. So let's go back to the business of buying and selling watches, because I think it's so interesting these days. There's room for innovation. There's room for disruption. It's sort of a weird place right now, because wouldn't you agree that there's almost too many options for how people can buy watches and none, and it's unclear what the safest options are? Like, I've always found that the more difficult it is to buy something, the worse it is for the commerce in that particular industry or that economy. And I feel like there's a lot of strange things like hurdles or barriers just that prevent people from actually buying watches. Now, I'm not saying that you're contributing to the problem by any means. I think that you're one of the better ways for people to buy watches. But aren't there too many ways of buying these things? Probably. But I think eBay changed the trajectory by instituting the authenticity guarantee, which is, you know, through gasoline on my business. Um, it's, they're still, they're still the girl in the room. They have to be the biggest, I, I assume. I don't know the numbers internally, but. Oh, I, oh yeah. You know, so that is the best way to buy a watch it just is. And then you have, you know, the rest of the websites, the rest of the pack, you've got your Chrono 24s, which is fine. They have an escrow system. I, I did not like it as a seller. It took me almost a month to get paid. It, it wasn't a particularly good system for me, but I, I think it's great. I personally like it as a repository of watches so that I can research what insane phone book numbers people are charging. Although that's kind of yeah. changed over the past few months, which is a good thing. And then you have all of the random websites. Like I, I do almost no business on timetitans.com. It exists. It's a mirror of my eBay, but I want to do the business on eBay not through my Titan Shopify. Um, but you well, that's it. why I tell people, and again, I, I, sorry to interject here, no, I, just, no, I, I feel like there's lessons to be, to be told to people. E- eBay is, is, is a platform that people are going to. It's trusted. If you can be, uh, if you have great inventory, good customer service, and just more or less know how to sell things, working with a platform like that is going to allow you to actually find customers. Whereas if you have your own website, Instagram store, Whatever small corner of the internet that is your shop, you have to imagine yourself as like a very small shop in like a massive metropolis. Like once in a while, someone might stumble at your store. But for the most part, all the potential people that would buy from you don't know about you. Or if they go to you, there's like a trust thing. They're like, why aren't you on eBay? Why aren't you here? And the people who don't participate in those platforms, for the most part, are trying to avoid relatively small fees right? Like that's really what they're trying to avoid is, you know, and, and, and you said with authenticity guarantee, like, I'm so glad that that's worked out well for you. That's something that I've been advocating for, um, for over five years now. But this idea that a third party uh, is, in the, is an intermediary and there is this, this assurance by a big company like eBay uh, that if the transaction somehow has a flaw that, you know, it'll be reversed and protected. Like, that is so crucial because so often when you're buying a watch at a good price, you're like, I hope I'm not getting screwed over. I hope I'm not getting screwed over. And this really eliminates a lot of that. I'm so glad that that's worked out well for you. Oh, it's it's game changing. And to, let's, you know, explore some of the other options. So, you know, in, in the 
quest to save the percentage. And, and in answer to you, the percentage scales. So on a $1,000 watch, it's kind of a high percentage. Um, and then as you go towards 3,000, 5,000 and up, the percentage lowers. They took PayPal out of the equation, which took PayPal's processing fees out of the equation. So it's kind of one fee where when you're at the, let's say, three to three to six K sweet spot, it's a couple of percentage points more than processing a credit card yourself or what, or what PayPal will charge you. But they're bringing the customer. Um, your alternative is it's not going to be any better on Chrome 24. Uh, and your alternative is uh, slightly more, actually, to go to a Facebook where you have a risk of getting scammed. You know, I, 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 this holds true for dealers as, as well as, you know, mom and pop sellers. And it doesn't mean that those places aren't thriving and doing plenty of business because, again, it's a relationship business. So if you know somebody, et cetera, et cetera. But man, speaking of relationship, the old story in watches is somebody that knew somebody else for 20 or 30 years and you know worked on memo and had a couple hundred K in inventory and absconded. This is a very common story. Yes, it is. And I've had a lot of sad emails over the years to blog to watch where someone has had a bad experience with a small brand or retailer had nowhere else to go and just been like, you know, I gave money, like you said, to this individual. I was promised something. I had these, you know, assurances for months and months and months before they sort of disappeared. And, you know, this has been something which is is an issue. I think that the problem is that in a law enforcement capacity, maybe, you know, people who are buying luxury watches isn't exactly the most vulnerable class. So they don't put like a huge amount of time and effort behind it. They see it as sort of like a, well, this is like a failed investment. But there there aren't a lot of consumer protections in this space. And, and trust is a big thing. And, you know, having a physical store oftentimes made people feel better because like you knew where you could go during business hours to complain if there was an issue. Um, and the internet has really changed that. So inter- intermediaries that are big responsible companies, whether it's eBay or otherwise, really adds that sort of veneer of legitimacy and credibility that, you know, is actually quite missing, right? Yes. Uh, Not everybody is the gentleman I am. And usually, you know, they have their teeth out. And you and I see it. We We see the scammers. We see the liars out there. And it's a tough position for us to be in because politically speaking, we can't just call out everyone. But we also want to distinguish ourselves and distance ourselves. You know, I mean, like, look, you're you have more. Ironically enough, I think that you have more other ethical people in the retailer space, even though there's plenty of unethical people, than I have in the media space. There are great people in the media space, but especially with what social media and the internet has done, is attracted uh, a not so um, ethical contingent of of speakers and personalities out there. You know. I have, you know, again, a legal background. I want to make sure that I'm following the laws and telling people the truth and being responsible. That does not represent your average influencer. And so I'm in a space where I frequently have to say statements that at least attempt try to explain to people, like, we try to do what we do responsibly. Everyone that works at a blog to watch uh, appreciates that and oftentimes is here because of that. Um, but so what, what do you think is the strategy to try to distinguish the more ethical actors in the space from the non-ethical ones, because I sympathize with people just coming in as buyers or, 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 you know, audience members or fans. It's a weird place to sort of sort out the watch space is it's scary, right? 
It is scary. And eBay's authenticity guarantee is the, is the answer. Even if you're buying from some dude who might, you know, have immoral tendencies, uh, you're protected. You will get what you pay for. So in the opinion space, what, what do you do? There's no authenticity guarantee for opinions or good watch reviews. Oh, well. I need something like that. Yeah. And then what do you do in the opinion space? I mean, you're, you're the <laughs> long-term other guy. You know, every, everybody knows you. you. You made it. I think uh, if somebody wanted to be you, similarly to somebody coming out today as a watch dealer, they'd have a, they will have a long, steep road to hope. It actually reminds me of something that used to happen. I I hope it hasn't happened recently, but there was a scam that used to happen years ago where people would pretend to be me, reach out to a watch brand, ask them for a watch to review. The the brand would send the, the watch out, and then because they weren't me, it was like, you know, they were stealing a watch, basically. And then once in a while, the brands would reach back out to me and be like, hey, is that watch review going up? And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then they, they would realize they're scammed. So obviously nothing happened to me. I never did anything wrong. But like this happened for a while where like people would pretend to be me, probably others, to get free watches. And apparently it worked more than once. Mm. There's a lot of that uh, in, in this business. And it's a gentlemanly business. I have only had issues twice in my career. Um, so I do give most people the benefit of the doubt, you know, and it's, it's work. The, the, Trump, Trump, the first yeah. time I bought a watch from a forum, I was scammed. The very, it was an expensive watch, but it was on, it was on watch you seek. Mm-hmm. And it was my first time saying like, okay, um, I'm, I'm going to this. I mean, this, we're talking a watch. I think I paid like 150 bucks for right? Like it, it, it was annoying, but it wasn't like, oh my God, I just lost 5,000 bucks. But this guy was an active user, and it. I wanted to get the watch, and it wasn't like at some crazy price. It was a fair price. Nothing about it was suspicious. Send the money. Watch never comes, and then I actually reach out because I at this point I already know the people like on Watch You Seek, and I, I, I reach out to the uh, the owner, and he looks into Ernie. it. He sees that he bans the yeah, Ernie bans the account, all that stuff. So I, so I, I was victorious, but again the guy disappeared. So the guy wasn't able to scam anyone else, but. You know, it was, it was, it was, it reminded me very, very early on this could happen. And pretty much after that, if I was buying watches online, it was on eBay. But I think it was actually fortunate that it's so early a, a, a part of my watch collecting phase when I attempted to get something outside of the eBay process. I had such a bad experience. I, I looked upon those types of, you know, honor system, you know, the gentleman's code, like, of course, I'm going to send the watch and you're going to send the money. Like, there's no assurances there. Like, yes, you you meet, you know, guys like you, guys like me, other good guys out there, but it's so impossible to tell from the outside. So I don't mean to go, like, go off on a riff there, but like, that's experience I had. It, it's a common experience. It's a good experience that you had early on. It's full of minefields. And most watch collectors have a story to tell. And I think what's also interesting is on the brand side, you have marketing brands that really put a lot of emphasis into making their product, their brand look great. But it's it's sort of an artificial construct, right? They've they've they're just marketing people. And we've had we've had brands that have pretty terrible products, arguably, do pretty well for a decent number of years exclusively based upon that marketing construction and lifestyle that they've created. Um, And I find that so fascinating. And I wonder why 
the more established watch industry hasn't learned more, right? I know we're going on a little different topic here, but like if you can be like a, an, you know, a, a, an MVMT watch company, mm. who again, in Very the beginning normal. had pretty poor product, but great marketing. If you can do that with a poor product, couldn't you do so much better if you had a great product? But it seems like almost no brand ever got that hint. Yeah, ask Portnoy about that. Why? Oh, the, the uh, was it Barstool Sports? He got panned. He put out a watch that was like, you know, a hundred dollar dropship, not even forty dollar dropship watch. He was selling it for two thousand dollars. People, oh my gosh, you know the the watch watch Twitter freaked out. This is like last month, uh, and I, I <laughs> you know follow Barstool Sports. I just kind of peripherally saw this, and it's like, oh yeah. I'm I'm not I'm I'm admittedly not someone that knows too much about sports culture, but it's the guy put out a watch because he thought he could do anything, and it was like a real. So it was like a hubris thing. Like people will buy anything that I put my name behind yes. or my endorsement behind, right? And you know, no no product and minimal branding. Um, but it works sometimes. There's instances where that can work. It, it's a it's a gamble for sure, and it's embarrassing almost every single time. But that. That individual would not have tried that, in my opinion, if he hadn't seen someone else do it successfully. Yeah, uh, well, it's watches are very, very susceptible to snake oil as, a, as an industry. But then there's great stuff. Then there's like the greatest products in the world. You know, the Rolex is the greatest vertically integrated brand in the world. I don't love Rolex. Oh yeah, it's never been my my true forte, but um, they are a template for a company like Apple. Hi, I'm Thomas Bayou, the founder of Bayou Watches. My family has been living in the heart of the Swiss Watch Valley for generations, but I'm the first one to put our name on the dial. Today, Bayou is one of the best kept secrets here in Switzerland, adopted by many industry connoisseurs. When we release a 100% Swiss-made stunning tourbillon for under 5,000 US dollars, the biggest regional newspaper came to investigate to see if this was possible. It is. We currently offer five model families and our prices start at 500 US dollar. I invite you to come and learn what industry experts know best. Authentic Swiss watchmaking. Visit BA111OD.com. Well, I've said that in a lot of ways, Rolex is like an eighth wonder of the world. Like, I'm not saying that it is the only place you should ever buy watches from, but what they've done as a, as a corporate entity, as a manufacturer, as a marketing company in many areas is so groundbreaking and so unparalleled that it's just it's worth studying on so many angles. Uh, well, this is a great entree to Wells Row. And to go back to what you're talking about, the the uh, itinerant, you know, diaspora of Eastern European watchmakers. That's what Wells Row began as. So it was okay. Samuel Weissman and his brother emigrated to New York in the early 20s uh, from, I believe, Austria. And is this like what, like a similar story to Bulova a little bit? Uh, not not too far off. Um, so okay, okay. Were, go on, go on. They were importers. Uh, they had some Swiss watch connections. So the first watches that they were bringing in were uh, Weissbro on, on the movements. I don't. I haven't yet seen a twenties Weissbro on the dial. Uh, mm -hmm. And they were sort of, you know, going the e Bausch route, getting the movements, getting the cases, assembling them in New York. By 1926, they started Wellsboro. And I've heard apocryphally that it's because people misread Weissboro and assumed it was Wellsboro. Uh, but 
Wellsboro was born. And from then, the 20s to about Korean War era, there was a big focus on military watches, both for infantrymen and for officers. So I have some, I have over 100 vintage Wellsboros that I've collected since 16, since 2016. And uh, some truly great world-class vintage chronos, including some with overlap to Breitling. I have about seven or eight that have Breitling case reference numbers from when Breitling wasn't making their own cases, but using contract cases, Um, which, you know, a contract case is that they ordered a case out of a catalog. And in this instance, the same one that Wellsboro was doing, but Wellsboro just had different dials. Uh, after so you have all these, you have all these. I do. And then, and, and this brand, the original brand lasted how long? You said started in the twenties, and how long was the uh, the original lifespan? Early seventies, and I don't know the date. Uh, I'm going to hire an archival producer. I did some cool uh, tabletop film work with a friend here who owns a lens house, and so I have enough uh, material footage to make like a two minute little brand video but I need to hire an archival producer because I've been to the 42nd street library. I have scoured the depths of the internet and look, I have a law degree. I know how to research and I just still can't find the exact date of death of Wellsboro. So to speak. Interesting. It's just, it's funny how so much of this information, like we take for granted today, that all this stuff is there. It's so hard to find a lot of these things. Uh, They were a very early casualty of the course crisis. So after the Korean war, they pivoted, they, they were sort of a micro course. So the, the big record of Wellsboro is the advertising record. So you go to newspapers.com, you look up Wellsboro, and that's what you're going to see, that few thousand instances of ads. And oftentimes they were being pitted against other American brands, uh, Hamilton, Banneris, Bulova, Elgin. Uh, and if one of those was maybe 60 or $65, a Wellsboro would have been 15 or $20. And they would have used a, a lesser uh, Swiss movement not the nicer, in this instance, American movement, and uh, probably a base metal steelback case. Well, the, there were some steel watches from this period. For the most part, it was, uh, you know, they skimped on material costs to offer a less expensive product, but uh, almost uniformly great design. I would say that they had some really beautiful, appealing designs throughout their entire history. So who who would have worn one of these? Who what what sort of segment of society you think would normal, have been a Wellsboro wearer? Just a wearer? normal a normal person. You know, it, okay. It you know and I would not say the person that was going out and buying themselves an Omega or a Rolex or you know maybe somebody would have chosen that over a Benrus or a Hamilton Elgin, but so normal. like a very a very middle class type of product. Sure, like the same person who would wear a Michael Kors five or six years ago, ten years. Okay. Okay, so like definitely not the cheapest, definitely not the most boring, definitely not the most generic, a bit aspirational, but isn't spending top dollar on luxury products. Sure, that's right. And, and, you know, this is in the time where you needed a watch. It was your tool. There's no quartz, you know, and when when quartz came out in 69, it was more than a Cadillac. So, yeah, it was very expensive. But they were an early casualty. It seemed that things had sort of petered out for them. I, there was a divorce. I don't know exactly what happened. It's very, very hard to piece together the record. And, and I continue to try, but you know, I might just forever be in the dark about some things. So, so who on earth did you acquire the, the name from? 
I, no, but there was nobody to acquire it from. I, there was really? No so trademark. it's basically just, that's the dream, just in the public domain. I took the trademark, it's now, it's now mine, uh, mine, mine and my wife's, and I couldn't find a set, I couldn't find anything. And, and I, I, I spent a lot of hours trying. Uh, it is not you, did, you did your due diligence, what else can you do? Sure, I would have bought it from somebody. It couldn't have had much value at the time that I took it over. Um, but yeah. I, no, but this this happens because there, there's a whole hobby of reviving old brands, especially in the watch space, and it's it's not so straightforward. You have to find the brand, see who owns it, ask yourself if it has desirability, see if the old designs like it's 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 a difficult thing. Why? Let, let me ask you this: Why that route as opposed to just starting something from scratch? I know that there's a reason, but just as often people start things from scratch as they do revive an old brand when. When wanting to start a new business venture, how do, how do you weigh it? Like, in what instances is coming out with an old brand again better than something just brand new? In your opinion, there was IP there, uh, you know, a lot of it. And at some point, I'll do some kind of a fun Web 3.0 where I maybe digitize all my old Wells Bros. And I deal mostly vintage watches, and. Some of my Wells Bros are world class. If they had a different name on the dial, they could be worth three to four times as much money. You know, if they had a Longines name on the dial, they'd be six figures. Uh, they're great, uh, and they're great. You know, objectively, they're, they're great. And it was a brand with history. You know, so many good designs, and I thought that I could breathe life into it. You know, which is kind of my job as a reseller in a way, you know, and I, <laughs> I remember when a lot of stuff that's super popular now was chopped liver. When I was starting out, like, you know, in the late aughts, like Daniel Roth was in the dumper, you know? And so I had so many of these watches that I sort of can't touch now. Uh, the APs were not that high, you know, it's things of that nature. Right. So I just saw, a route to do that, but it, it it is profit motivated. But I'm not making any money on it yet. Um, it's a long term exercise in brand building and primarily making a watch that I, I want to make. Um, right. And most importantly, assuaging the guilt that I feel from selling luxury watches because. I, in 2019, I took the bar again and I said, I'm, I'm going to be a criminal defense lawyer. I just, you know, I got to put some good out there in the world. And I, I didn't end okay. up going that route. I ended up launching Wellsboro the next year because Katie started to work from home because of the pandemic. And she sort of took over and brought the vision I had to be a reality. So she brought in the illustrator, Oscar Bacidas, who she worked with at Widening Kennedy and he sort of gave us our visual identity and, you know, she's the art director. So everything had to be just so the right colors, the right ideas. And then the watches are all 10% uh, of the sale price goes to various mutual aid food organizations, which is my interest. My main interest is, is cooking and eating. That's what I love to do. It's what I spend a lot of time thinking about and doing. And oh, cool. So I volunteer with mutual aid organizations and um, 
that's what I'd really like to get is to get Wellsboro giving six figures plus a year to these orcs. And uh, we were off to a very good start in 2020 into 2021. I think this year we slowed. Uh, we moved from Portland to L.A. I moved to L.A. in May. Uh, my wife left her job in February and started to freelance. And uh, just a big year of change, you know, leaving a job, starting a new one. Um, and then she birthed this Google year in search film, which is, is a big deal. You know, a billion people might see that film. So, um, you'll have to send that over. I'd love to see it. Yeah. Google year in search 2022. Can I change? Uh, prominently features corn kid. Um, so, you know, we have a lot planned for 2023 and beyond and a lot of desire to sort of give Wellsboro our, our love and energy. Um, but it's definitely not about profit. I didn't take this name, you know, to get rich. It's I, I so we use a Japanese watchmaker named Kinkichi Kamada, who is in southern Japan. Uh, and he designs in CAD all of our stuff and he hand assembles it, except the one watch that he actually handmade. Um, all of our watches to date and into the foreseeable future will use vintage movements or new old stock movements. Uh, right. And everything is colorful. Everything is named for food and is fun. It comes in a lunchbox, uh, which we may change as packaging, but that's fun. Uh, the Lunchbox won a Latin American Gold Design Award, which is very cool, and has been featured in some d design books. Uh, we did a very cool collaboration. So you're, you're you're empowering these people to have fun. I mean, that's really what a good brand is about. It's it's, it's finding good people for the things and empowering them to do the cool stuff they want to do. Hundred percent. I mean, if everybody that touches Wellsboro, it's like this resume turbocharger. It's you know, for for my wife, it's a client that won't say no. Right. It's like any, <laughs> it's any zany idea that she wants to do. I'm like, whatever, you're the boss. Like, yes, cool. Um, and for Oscar, you know, getting to make the things he wanted to make. Um, we did a very cool collaboration with the TV show Ozark. So I'm friends with the cinematographer who did the second half of season four. And we made a rap gift watch as. Oh, fun. Yeah, those are those are great things. I haven't even put it out there publicly, but we we did that. We did um, like one of our Staten Island series. It was the same case, but in uh, PVD titanium, and the dial was Ozark colors, and the second hand has a uh, falling man, because at the start of the Ozark series, a guy gets thrown off the Sears tower. It oh, very, <laughs> it looks very Hitchcockian. Is it's very cool, but uh, it, it's it's just it's fun. Our first watches were uh, lemon, 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 lime, and orange soda, and they were five hundred each, with the fifty dollars going to uh, at the time a Portland mutual aid organization. And those watches initially were selling for triple, which is just funny. And I only made twelve of each, and they were uh, new old stock '80s Monin divers that I had, you know, acquired years earlier and redialed. It's a fun design. Great, great colors. I encourage anyone to go to the wellsbro.com website um, to see not only the art direction of the website and the brand, but also um, the cool watches and things like that. Question related to 
the brand, running the brand at this phase. Now, there's a lot, there's a sort of a trajectory that brands go um, in terms of the way they grow, the product development, things like that. And I guess my question is, how much of the brand's lifespan do you have planned out? Um, are you just sort of taking it model by model and trying to figure out, which is one approach and totally valid, or do you have sort of like a, a, a five or 10 year or maybe even longer vision for how it's supposed to go? Again, knowing brands and knowing how these things tend to be, I'm sure that naturally you're going to want to think a few steps ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I have, <laughs> we, we've subdivided our sort of families into, you know, a few different core families. So the next one is Wellsboro Air and we're doing uh, pilot watches. So I have a very, very cool round about 1950 Wellsboro Pilot's Watch that had a, a rotating, almost like a blocky shark tooth bezel, very unique bezel that we're sort of making it bigger. Uh, it's, and it's nothing is one for one. I think that's very important. Uh, there's enough of that in, in the watch business. Yeah, we're going to do different dials, but I, I'm never really going to seek to do exactly the same case. But um, the first one will be a using an Omega caliber 1164, which is just a, a gussied up 7750. I have uh, maybe almost 50 pieces. And hopefully that'll be in the next few months. Again, I, we had life stuff that slowed us down, but now we, we live in our forever house in Franklin Hills, LA. And uh, now we have a lot of uh, kind of time and energy to get this going. It, it's a challenge being running Time Titans, which is capital intensive, and running Wellsboro, which is capital intensive. It's a juggling act, certainly. And so if I had unlimited money, Wellsboro would probably be further along. It's, it's a hard thing to do, and, and it's, it's infinite amount of time and money you can invest into a brand. There's always something to do. Make the website look better. Make the product better. Uh, make more product better customer service and then then there's marketing advertising events bringing in partners like there's literally an infinite amount of, of time and money you can sink into even the smallest brand um and then to have you know something like a life and stuff like that is challenging that's why things tend to be slow because you can't do it all at once but all of the things literally demand your attention absolutely uh I, i'd be remiss if i didn't plug our straps so we work with uh, an Italian strap partner who is among the best strap houses in the world. And I think that nobody has our colors, that I'm pretty sure. But I think the price point that we are at is very, very good. And when you do the three straps and get 15% off, I think we're nigh on unbeatable. Uh, add in weird sizes like 14 and 21 and shorts of which I'm actually about to list a bunch of shorts uh, on the site that I didn't have prior. The straps are great. and But no 24 millimeters? Yeah, no 24s. It's nothing against Panerai. I love Panerai. But uh, there's... You'll get there. The, well, people, see, people have that covered, you know, I think. So... I don't know. You do good stuff at good prices. I bet people would want these in 24. I, I certainly could do it. It wouldn't be... A, boy, that has required a lot of investment. Six-figure plus investment to... Oh, to yeah, do, no doubt. ...to do the straps. And, you know, I have these fi these cool, like, Corps of Engineer file cabinets that, you know, we've, we've labeled. And it's like... 
a crazy strap heaven. We have almost a hundred different straps. There's some very, very cool ones like um, the wild Italian pigskin, the boar, you know, very, very cool. It's like edged in Napa. It's a, a vintage style construction. I have these all Napas with a rounded tongue that are very much like an, like looks like an old constellation strap. Um, very, very cool. But I, you know, I, I want to give my baby all this love and attention because the more watches I can put out, the more money I can donate. And I, I, you know, I doubt that I'll make money on the next pilot's chronos. I'm very, very, very price conscious. Uh, I don't want, you know, I'm not going to be a Ming. I'm not going to be a Messina. Um, not that there's anything wrong with those two brands. I think those two brands provide a, a great template to model many things I do after. But I just don't want to go insanely upmarket so quick or or really I just want to continue to provide value and sell out. That's that's my goal. Why do you think there's such a tendency to go as high market so quickly? I mean, I've had this conversation with many, many others. I love the idea of someone choosing his price point and sticking with it for the long run. But people tend to go up market really, really fast. Why, in your opinion, does that happen? Mm. Well, if you can't scale in units, you can scale in dollars. So, you know, Ming will make more money selling a $25,000 watch than a $2,500 watch. Uh, and you okay, sell- so is it, just, is it just marketing when they say that, you know, yes, it's more expensive, but they had to put more money into it and they're barely making anything. Because I think that they tell a story and I know it's wishy-washy, but the story is, yes, it's charging more, but I'm still making about the same money because I had to invest so much into this thing, which again, doesn't always make sense. But what's going on there? I, I lost money on the Ozark watches. Um, I probably was closer to break even on the Staten Island series uh, and break even after the donating it. Because I'm not making hundreds of pieces at a time, I don't have the benefit of an economy of scale. And, you know, I hope to make money on the straps. I'm not yet selling as many straps as sort of the big boys where I will make on whatever I'm selling. But, you know, at the most, I'm doing three, four thousand dollars a month of straps. It's nothing, you know, expansive. Um, so it's an exercise in brand building frankly. Uh, and, you know, maybe one day Brightland will come calling and then they'll want to buy me and want to, you know, have me consult. And that could be fun and cool. But in the meantime, I'm making watches I want to wear. So with these Omega Pilot Chronos, I bought these new old stock Omegas from the Swiss movement seller that I have a relationship with. I got 20 pieces of uh, Omega Caliber 3600 from the, the most doggy <laughs> Speedy of all time, the Speedy Ratchapont. And I will make something really fun with that. I'll make a Ratchapont that I'll be truly excited to wear. I'm excited to wear any of my watches and I wear them frequently. I wore my Gabagool at my 40th birthday party a few months back. Um, the Grape Soda is exceptional. Exceptional watch. It's handmade. Uh, you know, it's where we're more like a independent than a micro. Uh, but we're just, we're so many things. There's so many strands. We're a, a, a new old brand. We give money to food charities. Everything's named for food. We are upcycling movement. It's like, it's almost confusing, but you know. Well, no, the brand, the brand and this, be, this becomes interesting with someone such as yourself. You didn't start the brand because you had a creative vision. 
uh, you, ha- you started the brand because there's things you loved and you wanted to manifest it in physical form. And the brand is becoming a manifestation of yourself and, and your wife. Uh, and it's the things you like. It seems to be the watches you want to wear, the straps that you want to put on your watches, the price points you want to spend. And in, in reality, that's the most effective way of building a brand because consumer number one is you. And as long as you can make you happy, you know you're onto something because there's, there's going to be other guys out there just like you. I think it becomes more challenging when people start a brand that's not for them, which is a design that isn't what they want to wear, which is a price point that they're not comfortable spending at, which is a distribution model that they don't shop at. And probably the most success you'll see today from smaller brands like Wellsbro is just what you're talking about, where someone like Rich says, you know, I just want to do what I want to do and I want to make it evoke me and my personality, things I like. There's just always bound to be other people out there that have similar affinities, right? Absolutely. We've had, uh, it's, it's an amazing response. I've spent almost nothing on marketing and I probably need help in this arena. I think we, Katie does not let me touch social for Wellsboro. And I have a just tepid relationship with it as time tightens. I, I don't, I'm very bad. I'll look at Facebook. I hardly look at Instagram. You know, I'm, I'm sort of have enough things to occupy me in my day. And I have this theory, a friend said it to me. I think it's, it's so true that in, in 10 or 20 years, we're going to determine that social media is as bad for you as cigarettes. Oh, but it's to- pretty horrible. <laughs> I, I, I think most of us have realized that from the start. There's, there's ways of using it, but I think it took me about a couple of weeks after Instagram originally launched. I was like, yeah, this is bad news. I mean, <laughs> people, people don't need social media. They need curated media. The idea that there's a bunch of experts out there that said, yeah, this is, this is probably a good way of, le- of learning the news. Uh, yes, there's checks and balances there to make sure it's authentic. But the whole idea where you just, you know, everybody is their own TV channel now, nobody wants that. People want like professionally done stuff. We just, there, there just isn't time in the day. Right, just like with watches, you want you're spending money. You want you want the good stuff. You don't want to like experiment and after six thousand watches realize what the good one is. You you want to do some research before you invest your money into it. Just same thing with time and media. Sure, and I'm happy with you know what she's. If you look at the Instagram page, uh, although I'm sure we've been posted in quite a while, it looks beautiful. You know, she's very thoughtful about it. But even there, like building a business on Instagram is sketchy at best. The algorithm has changed. TikTok eat their lunch. You know, so I think we have some amount of TikTok presence, but I don't see myself as, you know, the tick, TikTok man of the future. Um, so, you know. I, 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 I go in the other direction. I say go to where there's the most eyeballs and the least saturation. And the most saturation right now is is on social media like TikTok. But where's the least saturation in real world marketing? It's great that your store is online, but why can't people learn about it in the real world? I think billboards, for example, for bang for your buck, probably offer more today in a big city than than a lot of forms of online advertising. It's funny. I know James, uh, James Landon, actually from, from way back, and my buddy could see off of his apartment uh the, an analog shift billboard, which is granted their watches in Switzerland now, but uh, you're right. I, I think that when we sit down this year, as the year turns and we kind of make a resolution to do more for Wallsboro, which we undoubtedly will, uh, that's going to be a part of the conversation because people people want more from us. I know this. Well, I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you what the, what the right 
model is in this day and age. It's people learn about you in the real world, just like I said. So the some, a lot of the advertising dollars go there, but that's not why they bought you. They they have to then you be sort of sort of like pique their interest. Then they'll go online and start to learn about you. And once they go online. Yes, you need to have a good website. You need to make sure that uh, you know Watch Media is reviewing you, and that it looks like that you know the people that know what they're talking about take you seriously. And then you have to create a lot of insurances, and then you know usually the transaction happens online. But it's it's oftentimes the most effective, unless you're basically reading a blog to watch every day and seeing new watch brands to get people's attention in the real world first. Yeah, it's, it's advice I'm going to take um, as we as we build as we go forward. Um, but I think keeping it small uh, for the time and being allows me to have success at a small scale. You know, it's not that hard to sell 40 Pilots Chronos, but uh, it might be really hard to sell 400 and extremely hard to sell 4,000. You know, that's kind of like a 90s and aughts thing, right? Like uh, Omega uh, 007, 10,007 10, units produced. <laughs> I congratulate you for coming this far. You've obviously done an amazing job uh, with obviously, you know, Time Titans for so long and and now with Wellsboro. It's going to be an interesting journey ahead. I'm sure we'll have more time to talk about it, especially now that you're here in LA, um, because I'd like to see how things go. Because I've, you know, remember, I've seen, I have a special vantage point because I've seen so many brands for the last 15 years come, go, develop, not develop. There's just sort of like, an interesting trajectory that can happen. There's only one of a few directions, and I see, I see how the sort of like wonder-eyed phase you're going to ends up going to different types of phases and things like that. It's just, again, just by virtue of my my vantage point. Not that I have any special intelligence in that area. You know what I mean? Oh, you're right. I just I have a lot of dollars invested, and I'd never bet against my wife, who is. Uh... She's very good. <laughs> she... No, you, you you. That's the thing you got to do. You have to try. You have to keep going. Um, but you're, but you need to think about hurdles that'll come your way and what to do when they come, because there will be hurdles. It's just about having some type of plan. Um, I, I, a very common way that a lot, and we're almost, we're basically out of time for the show, but a very common way that brands screw up is, uh, they take investor money because so many strings come attached to investor money that they can't actually meet those expectations. So by actually taking money, they end up shooting themselves in the foot. And it slows them down so much that they actually end up dying because they were trying to grow. Yeah, I'm not, that's never going to happen. I, I hope that Wellsboro is not my watch rugs, and I'll, I'll just leave it with this. So I'm willing to try. I'm willing, <laughs> I'm willing to fail. And about twelve or thirteen years ago, I made a watch rug. My dad had this really cool rug that was from the '80s, and it was like a, a large round AP complicated pocket watch on a rug. And I okay. thought, that is so cool. And I tried to make some rugs and it just, you know, it was expensive. I just, it was too much work and effort to make the rugs, but I tried. And if you ever come over you get to see my watch rugs. I, a friend of mine has a watch rug. I think someone else made it, but I actually am a fan of watch rugs. Well, I have a spare for you if you, if you want. Oh one. my gosh. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay. Um, Rich, please just uh, remind everyone uh, where they can find more about you and your stuff as we uh, end the show. Sure, sure. So number one is Wellsboro. Easiest uh, things to buy some straps and you get some candy in the coolest uh, strap box in the watch business. And 
Time Titans, I would say my eBay store, you know, so uh, ebay.com slash Time Titans. Yes, timetitans.com does show some of my inventory, but please buy it from me on eBay and send it through the authenticity guarantee to, you know, have that extra seal of approval on what you're buying. And uh, people could reach out on Time Titans Instagram and I'm agreeable. I think that there's always this kind of fear with, with dealers, resellers, like, you know, we have sharp teeth. And just the opposite. Like, I need to sell stuff. You know, yeah, I try and buy below market and sell at market. But if I'm needing to sell something, maybe you're going to get a great deal. You know, and I think people sort of have this opposite idea. There you go. Reach out to the agreeable Rick Reichbach at Time Titans and Wellsboro. Rich, thank you so much uh, for being on this episode of Superlative. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.